sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Never forget the guy who ran this investigation, Peter Strzok. Never forget what he said. Trump should lose 100 million to zero. We need an insurance policy. Told Lisa Page, don't worry, Lisa, we'll stop Trump. This is what Bill Barr wants to investigate. <clears throat> the man uh, had a brief summary of the report, released all the report that was legally allowed to be released, put it on the internet. To call a, a public servant like the attorney general a liar is completely over the top. And now, Stacey Washington. Wow, what a show we have planned for you today. We're going to be chatting with some wonderful guests. This first hour, we have Karen Strahan, who's been on the program many times before. She's a spokesperson for Men's Rights Edmonton and a contributor to AvoiceForMen.com. She's going to discuss Mayor Pete and this um, kind of interesting dichotomy that he has because he's a openly gay uh, presidential candidate and his prospects. So she's going to come on and join us to talk about that. Um, and then we are also going to be digging into quite a few things here to start off with. Um, I, I, I want to get to the article from yesterday that we, we didn't get a chance to discuss. Missourians would lose under Josh Hawley's well-intentioned drug pricing bill. There was a really great press conference yesterday and it was the president of the United States and a bunch of people who'd been hit with surprise medical bills, 109,000 for one family like a year after the surgery, another guy, um, it was like $18,000 for a simple drug test that his doctor kind of said in passing, oh, by the way, stop by and let him take some of your blood because we want to do a quick blood test. The blood test normally costs 18 to $20 to the hospital. They normally charge $100 for it. He got a surprise medical bill about a year afterwards for 17800 He was able to settle for a lower amount, but not without incurring legal costs. And it was a really kind of traumatic incident for all of the families that were highlighted in the press conference. And so the, the president has said he wants to eliminate the ability for medical companies to charge people these outrageous costs for out-of-network procedures or procedures that maybe a doctor just said, hey, you know, you need to have a blood draw or a test or something that normally costs a nominal amount of money. And so that's a, that is an absolute win for Americans, for the president to take this issue up, specifically to address what health insurance companies do, it's kind of like a little bit of a, um, a clawback where they have to agree to certain rates in network, but out of network, it's basically the wild, wild west and they can charge whatever they want. And the reason we know that's true is because you get your explanation of benefits and you compare it to in network and out of network costs. And you see that they're using the same lab, they're using the same technicians, the same radiologist or whoever. But if that radiologist is an out of network situation, the costs are like 10,000 times higher. So we're going to dig into that as well. I want to just first have this moment uh, and, and connecting those two together starts with us kind of acknowledging that we Missourians, for folks who live here in the state of Missouri, we've actually gotten a much better crack at uh, having someone represent us in the Senate with Josh Hawley. I've been, you know, I was cautiously optimistic when he announced he was going to run. You know, there was a lot of talk about the fact that he was already freshly elected to state government here statewide. And, you know, how would he do his job and run a campaign? And he has really stepped up to the mark and done a great job. And this is no different, only 
I'm kind of disagreeing with him here in this piece at the Kansas City Star. He has proposed a bill that would bar pharmaceutical companies from setting higher prices in the United States than they do in Canada, the United Kingdom, and other industrialized nations. So in other words, he wants to standardize the prices. If they charge the price, if they charge one price in Canada, they have to charge it here in the U.S. Now, it sounds like an America first policy, but unfortunately, it isn't. So this isn't me coming out against Josh Hawley or it's just a simple disagreement and a suggestion that he's making for legislation. Now, obviously, he's trying to right a wrong here, but it could backfire and deprive Americans of life-saving medicines. Now, it is unfair that we face higher drug prices than patients in other countries, especially given the fact that nearly a quarter of Americans struggle to afford their prescriptions. And the Kaiser Family Foundation actually tracks these statistics, and, and that's according to them. But the reason for the price disparity is what we have to unpack here. Many other countries set caps on drug prices. Canada's patented Medicine Prices Review Board has the power to force drug companies to lower prices in Canada. The UK simply refuses to cover drugs that bureaucrats deem too expensive. So instead of being able to get the drug and save your life and figure out how to pay for it later like you do here in the US, in the UK, you just can't get the drug. So if you drop dead, well, but nobody had to pay the outrageous price. Do you see the difference there? So Americans have access to 95% of cancer drugs released worldwide between 2011 and 2018. Canadian patients have access to just 58% of these medicines. Patients in the UK have access to just 74%. So by capping prices in the U.S., Holly wants to force drug companies to raise prices elsewhere and keep other countries from freeloading off of American research and development. And there's no reason to think that foreign governments would cooperate. Why would they change now after years of refusing to cover life-saving drugs? If they're forced to pay the same price that we have to pay, they simply won't have those drugs and their little serfs and peons, which is re- that's what you are. If your government can say you can't get a life saving drug because it costs too much, you don't really have citizenship. You're actually just, a, you know, a, a member of the cogs in the wheel of your despotic government. And yeah, I said it. These are European nations that are our allies, but their activities when it comes to the health care of their citizens are absolutely not just undemocratic, because I don't really care for that word anyway, they're not freedom-oriented. They treat their people like property. Ultimately, Senator Hawley's bill would just bring foreign price controls to the states, which would be horrible news for our drug companies who already face massive barriers to success. Bringing new drugs to patients is expensive, time-consuming, and risky. Only 12% of experimental treatments ever make it to market. All told, it costs approximately $2.6 billion and takes up to 15 years to create a single drug. And that's according to the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. Companies are able to recoup their investments only if they can sell their drugs at market prices, which is why the overwhelming majority of drug companies first launch their medicines in the U.S. When a new cancer drug is launched anywhere in the world, British patients have to wait a median of eight months to access it. Canadians wait a median of 11 months, and Americans, by contrast, have immediate access to nearly all oncology treatments. I stress again, we pay more, but we have instant access. And, and as you know, if you've ever had anyone who's had any kind of cancer, you know that 8 to 11 months is a death sentence. 
if you want to save someone's life and they have cancer and there's an experimental drug out there that you want to get your hands on and you can get your hands on it immediately to see if it would make a difference, that is the difference between that experimental drug getting there to your patient in time to save their life as opposed to people in Canada and the UK and elsewhere where they simply are forced to die waiting. And we already have an example of this type of healthcare model. It's the Veterans Administration where 387,000 Americans died waiting for access to an appointment just to find out what was wrong with them. So thanks to this innovation, Americans live longer, healthier lives. And remember, since the turn of the century, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry has invested more than half a trillion dollars developing new drugs. More than half of the world's new cures come from labs in the United States. Death rates from HIV AIDS have fallen 88% over the last three decades. Cancer deaths have, the the rates have dropped nearly 26% since 1990, thanks to new medicines. Hawley's bill, as well-intentioned as it is, would stop these advancements dead in their tracks. Price controls would deter research and developmental uh, investments. Today's incurable diseases would remain incurable. Missouri patients would be hit particularly hard. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 13,000 Missourians will die of cancer this year, and another 35,000 will be diagnosed. Close to 4 million Missourians battle at least one chronic condition. Keep in mind there are only 5.6 million people in the state of Missouri. So I'm not against him, but there has to be a better way. I think with more research and innovation into how we can work with America's drug companies to right these wrongs, to to make it easier for them to bring drugs to market. We can keep the same razor pinpoint sharp environment that exists for Americans where we get literally it's something that's in test mode. It's something that has gotten past the initial hurdles. Patients all over the U.S. can get into trials and studies and have an opportunity to experience these life-saving medicines. Patients around the world are waiting 11 months 10 months, eight months, but they're also paying a lot less. So in some ways in America, we get what we pay for. And I'd also like to see us have a more robust system, you know, kind of like the, um, and this is just my own idea spitballing off the top of my head. Nothing was proposed like this in, in Josh Hawley's bill, but I believe the same kind of philanthropy that we see on GoFundMes where People raise money for each other when, you know, this person has something that they need and they go on GoFundMe and a bunch of Americans dive in and pay for it. I think we could have something like that nationally where the money would go directly to the health insurance company that the person designates where their bills are located to make sure that people who are struggling to pay medical bills don't have to worry about not getting their their treatment or what have you, or afterwards when they're well, figuring out how to pay $150,000 or $250,000 in bills. Not a government solution, a private sector solution. So that's that. I wrote it. It's over at the Kansas City Star. You can find it on my Twitter feed as well. Uh, I believe I posted it up on, and it'll, it'll be up at StaceyOnTheRight.com uh, over the weekend. Um, so I I now want to listen to Donald Trump talking about his successes and losses. And this bit of audio is really, it's, it's cute. It's got background music, which we don't usually do, but it's from the opening episode of The Apprentice. And the reason why I want you to hear it is because in, in a lot of ways, Donald Trump hasn't changed at all. And I can name a whole bunch of ways that he has changed in for the better. But in this aspect, describing being very open about his failures and successes, he is still the same. 
And this is important for us to listen to. It's number five. My name's Donald Trump, and I'm the largest real estate developer in New York. I own buildings all over the place, model agencies, the Miss Universe pageant, jetliners, golf courses, casinos, and private resorts like Mar-a-Lago, one of the most spectacular states anywhere in the world. But it wasn't always so easy. About 13 years ago, I was seriously in trouble. I was billions of dollars in debt. But I fought back, and I won big league. I used my brain, I used my negotiating skills, and I worked it all out. Now my company's bigger than it ever was, it's stronger than it ever was, and I'm having more fun than I ever had. So you hear him explain there how he went through a series of losses. Um, and the same time period that he's referring to are, is the time period that the leak from the IRS that went to uh, the New York Times with his taxes. And so over that 13 year span, he lost about a billion dollars and everyone is, you know, kind of poking fun and saying, Ooh, ooh, look, he lost money. But after that, he's still a multi-billionaire. And I want to stress that, you know, obviously a lot of us, especially if you're not dealing in those kinds of large real estate transactions and business deals, and you don't have a team of tax accountants and attorneys working for you to do that kind of stuff, we're not all intimately acquainted with what that's about. But it is the same type of deals that everyone who was in the business arena at the time, they were all making those deals, taking those depreciations and write-offs and operating in the same fashion. Also, it's lawful. There's nothing illegal about taking those write-offs. If it was, the IRS would have said something about it. And I guess I'll just close it up with, um, I, I often think to myself, you know, what really drives haters? And I think a lot of it comes from the envy that something that you never considered that you wanted to do, someone else not only went out and did it, but lost at it, failed at it big, and then came back and bounced back from it. And you're still sitting around thinking about, you know, whatever you're thinking about. And I know in this audience, we have, it's an audience of winners, the same kind of people who, you know, raise multiple millions of dollars to fund this ministry and give philanthropically all over the world, including to their local churches and volunteer in schools. This, this is the audience that we, we understand what it looks like to see someone who's doing a great job. And if they fall and get back up, we're happy about it. And so I just want to call attention to the fact that yet again, liberals are telling us and showing us that they don't understand how the business world works, how industry works, or how to fail and bounce back and make money and employ other people. Great demonstration on their part. Thanks. Get your golf clap. When we get back, we'll have Karen Strahan with us. Stay there. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? 
So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MetaShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. When our kids were in elementary school, you could always tell when they had some exciting news to share with you. They would come bursting through the door and announce, guess what happened today? Then they would share the news. Karen and I do that to each other, too. I call her or she calls me anytime we have something exciting to share. Good news was never meant to be kept a secret. It was meant to be shared. I love verse 10 of Psalm 40. Listen to these words. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. In other words, the psalmist says, whatever happened to me that you did for me, I wanted to share it, and I did share it. Based on this verse, we need to share some things. First, share what God has done in us. He says, I have not hidden thy righteousness within my heart. God delivered me. He saved me. He changed me. He's doing a work in my life, and I want to share that with others. Secondly, we need to share what God wants to do for others, his faithfulness, his salvation. He says, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. God wants to do that for you, too. He wants to show himself faithful in your life. Then we need to share his loving kindness and truth. I want others to know how good God is. He's not a secret. He's not something to be hidden. Here's what I want you to remember today. God's loving kindness and his goodness to us were never meant to be a private matter. We have good news that must be shared. Go ahead. Really, seriously. Go ahead and tell somebody. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the program. Don't forget to go to onenewsnow.com and afr.net and urbanfamilytalk.com. Check out our content over there. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Karen Strawn. She's a spokesperson for Men's Rights Edmonton, contributor to a voiceformen.com. Hey, Karen, thanks for joining in today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Mayor Pete, uh, here's, here's his quote. I welcome a fight with Trump over who has a more traditional attitude on marriage. Is he really going there? You know, I, he's probably going there. And, you know, that kind of tells me why it might be that, uh, that Biden and, uh, Sanders appear to have, you know, they're the two front runners. And everybody else is somewhere, you know, uh, distant third uh, and and beyond, right? And and I think it, it's actually maybe people are instinctively realizing that uh, when you have some identity characteristic, particularly when you're on the left um, or you know among the Democratic Party, and uh, you have some identity characteristic that is other than straight white male, uh, you you've been given a, a get out of criticism free card. And so the fact that he's sort of playing up the whole gay angle, um, you know, that that kind of uh, that that I think that's going to put people off in in a way. 
um, because it, it really does call attention to the fact that he's gay. That should be incidental. Uh, it, we should be thinking about his com- competence, his policy, uh, his, his you know, political ideas, all of those things. Uh, same-sex marriage, it, it's no longer an issue. And, you know, we can probably just shut up about it now. So, okay, so you're making a, a fascinating point because I, I want to I want to like capitalize on that for a second because uh, you know obviously sure. a lot of us are still pretty upset that what you've just said is true. I I admit it. I admit that the war over same sex marriage was lost when you know Obergefell was passed. But there's something else that's really and and I I try to get to how do I how do I articulate it? And you just did so perfectly. You're saying that because of the, the Supreme Court ruling, because of the, the ability for any person to marry any other person, him running as the first gay president is actually, it's a step backwards. It's, it's looking at the rear instead of looking ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, really, it's, and, and the, the idea of bringing up, you know, traditional versus same-sex marriage as a topic of debate uh, that he would like to discuss with Trump uh, I mean, what's the point? It's a moot point. The the, the decision's been made, uh, and there's nothing anybody is going to be able to do about it. So essentially, he's just intro- he's just decided to introduce something that's a politically charged topic that's all to do with uh, you know identity characteristics that um, you know are intrinsic to the person. You know, not they're they're not malleable. They're not uh, they're not something that you, you can change religions, but, you know, according to the common wisdom, you can't change your sexual orientation. And it just reminds people, right? Here's a guy who has this um, this get-out-of-criticism-free card. You know, Hillary pulled that card when she was running for president. You know, oh, sexist. You know, if you criticize me, you're being sexist, right? That's a very sexist thing to say. Um, and uh, And that just shuts people right down. And he can just say, well, you're just being homophobic, and that's why you're criticizing me. So I think that even, you know, like, the left is kind of, you know, the the, the political left, there's a huge proportion of them that are moving further and further and further left. And uh, and there are a bunch of moderate uh, people on the left, you know, just center left and, and a little bit, you know, moderate leftists that are scratching their heads and, and saying, you know, this is a weird identity politics game that's being played right now, the intersectional uh, uh, political game, and, uh, and we don't really like it. Uh, it it's, not, it, it's not really where we want to go. We should, be, um, we should be focusing on unity and, and how all people are intrinsically the same in some way. There are things that all people have in common. Um, and, and we should be focusing on those rather than dividing our country into a bunch of warring tribes, um, all vying for, I guess it's a race to the bottom, all vying for the ultimate victim status, because that translates into power among that contingent on the left. Um, if you are a straight white male, you go to the back of the line, you get to speak last, or you sit in the back and, and shut up. If you are a, uh, I don't know, a transgender disabled woman of color, uh, you know, you, you get to speak first because you are the, you know, more, you are a more victim-y victim than anybody else, right? And uh, so they're playing that game way over on the far left, and all of the moderate leftists are just looking, they're looking at Joe Biden, and they're seeing that he's got, 
you know, a solid track record in politics. He hasn't really done anything uh, too crazy in terms of, of his policies and stuff that he's backed through his history, um, at least his recent history, the last decade or, or two. Uh, or so, and uh, and they're looking at Sanders, and they're saying, well, you know, we we want universal health care, and maybe we want a, min- a nationwide minimum wage, federal minimum wage, and maybe an uh, increase, and maybe we want, uh, you know, uh, better access to uh, post-secondary education, and they may not care how how impossible it is to maybe have those things and still keep the country on budget, but they're not they're not that that strange game that's being played over on the far left. So what you're seeing, I think, is is the Democratic base, right? The the moderates, the, the moderate, uh, the silent majority, uh, they'd just rather not play that game at all. And they see, you know, Kamala Harris, a woman of color. They see Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, a woman of alleged, you know, one 1,024th color. Um, you know, they see all these people who have these these victim cards to play whenever they are criticized, and and I think that they just they just want to get away from that. So when you when you talk about getting away from it, um, there was a interesting bit of audio from one of the presidential uh, Klobuchar, uh, Amy Klobuchar was mm-hmm. getting interviewed on a panel someplace. And they were asking her about, you know, how many people approach you about Russia and, and, you know, when you're on the campaign trail, it has to be something that people are constantly discussing with you. And you know what she said? (laughs) She said, no. She said, you would think they would. Uh, It it seems like they would. But most of them are asking me about the opioid crisis and health care, you know, how to get costs down, how to get more people covered, et cetera, et cetera. And that was her just... Yeah, you know, an honest response. I mean, what that that goes to what you've just said. Yeah, no, the Russia thing, um, the whole Russia thing. You know, I'm watching CNN, and they had a pollster who came on, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and they had asked people, you know, what are the top issues, and you could pick that that are important to you uh, in in terms of the 2020 election, and. They, they could uh, pick more than one. There was a list of issues. They could pick more than one. They could write down their own issue that, that wasn't on the list. Um, and you know how many chose Russiagate? Zero. Mm. Oh, Zero okay. people. Wow. They could pick more than one thing. And so, I mean, they could have added it to the other things if they wanted to. It's just not important to people. It's important to the media. For some insane reason, it's important, really important to Rachel Maddow. I think she probably, once if Trump wins again, she's going to have to be committed to a mental institution. She's just going to lose her mind. Um, but it's not important to uh, the, the general population of the U.S. Nobody cares. And they're being spoon-fed a steady diet of, it, of something that they just don't care about. There are other things that are more important to the American people than, uh, than same-sex marriage, than... Uh, then uh, Kirsten Gillibrand's pet project, which is you know the camp- epidemic of rape on campus, which you know really doesn't exist, but uh, that's that's her her little uh, um, that's bee in her bonnet. Mm. And uh, you know they don't care about uh, so much about you know the idea of of uh, identifying marginalized people by their skin color or by um, by their uh, ethnicity or or by you know other their sex um 
they, they're, they're getting away. The, the general population is getting away from that. They're moving away from that, and they're moving towards, like, let's just fix the problem. And, uh, and then everybody will be better off. But the Democratic Party, just, they need to wake up and smell the coffee because they're not going to be successful doing what they're doing, which is giving the keys to the kingdom, the entire party, to that identity politics contingent um, that are getting uh, more and more extreme and more and more insane, I guess. So uh, let's let's kind of look at some of the other candidates. And I know you you mentioned Joe Biden, um, Bernie Sanders. I I just wanted to get your kind of rapid fire take on the chances. Obviously, Joe Biden is unfortunately their strongest uh, candidate, in my opinion. I think he's much stronger than Kamala Harris. Um, She has a grading quality that makes her like a, a tanned Hillary Clinton. It's it's really it's she's terrible to listen to. She has a weird laugh yeah, like Hillary shot, Clinton Lord. had. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. So I don't actually see her as being as serious. I actually see her queuing up to be the vice presidential running mate of Joe Biden if if he's the nominee. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, has promised not to make any promises about who his running mate would be. Others have said they'll pick a person who's diverse. He's refusing to make that choice right now. So do you think Bernie is, because he was at one point the front runner and a lot of uh, younger people still think he is, does is, does he have the chance or? Um, I think he does have a chance. You know, there's there's a lot that can happen over the next little while. And uh, and he does actually have a chance. I, you know, I'm just speaking for myself, if, because I would really like to see another uh, four years of, of Republican presidency and, you know, Republican rule or leadership. And so, essentially, uh, my hope is is that if he gets unfairly squeezed out again by the DNC, because there were some shady shenanigans going on behind the scenes <laughs> last time around, um, and and he really was uh, squeezed out um, because it was her turn, and that had been agreed. And uh, so, if he gets squeezed out again, and there's any inclination or any you know hint that that. It, it was a repeat of last time. I, I hope that he runs as an independent and he splits the Democratic vote. And, uh, you know, there are t- something like 20% of people who want Sanders, who support Sanders, say that if Sanders is not the candidate, they will vote for Trump. They don't care who who is running instead of Sanders for the Democrats. They will vote for Trump. They won't even vote for an independent. They'll vote for Trump. Rather and this is a polling polling info that you that you found that shows this. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So wow. I mean, you're looking at a at a situation where the left is just kind of eating itself right now, like the political left, the, the sort of establishment left, uh, which is the Democratic Party. It's it's just in a, in a state of of implosion, and maybe they'll wake up. Maybe they'll wake up and and figure out that, you know, they need to actually embrace the moderate policy positions. They need to be able to have some compromise across the aisle. One of the interesting things is that the left is moving further and further left. Um, the right is actually consolidating around the center of the right wing. Um, that That is where the, the median right winger is, is right in the moderate right wing zone. Um, so we have a, a left that's going crazy left, and we have a right that's actually becoming much more moderate uh, in terms of, you know, the Republican Party and registered Republicans. So we're looking at, at a situation where the sensible people who are 
somewhat progressive. If you if you poll Republicans, uh, you know, a significant number of them are are just you know, okay, same sex marriage, not a big deal to me. Um, things like that. They're 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 coming around to uh, a more centrist position on a lot of issues, particularly social issues, and uh, so they're moderating, whereas the left is radicalizing, <laughs> and uh, and we're we're seeing a real uh, a real. I think it just, we're going to have to see a decision over the next uh, 10 years or so among the population. You know, what do we want? Do we want a divided country or do we want bipartisanship and, and cooperation across the aisle? Mm, but Karen, I, I saw so, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, right? you're right about the, the kind of moderation that's happening. But I don't think some of the people are moderating because it's like, you know what, we have to give in. You know, we, we've had Obergefell. But there's a ton of people out there like me where I'm I'm firmly of the belief that moderating doesn't get us anywhere. Because as you pointed out at the very beginning of this interview, you know, Pete, Mayor Pete, uh, he's he's not satisfied with Oberbefeld. He He's not satisfied with the fact that gay marriage is something that's lawful in America, because if he were, he wouldn't be running as the first gay president or showcasing his, his marriage to, you know, his husband on uh, magazine covers. He wouldn't be making such a big deal out of it. And. The whole finger-in-your-eye nature of the, the win for same-sex marriage has not stopped. And, and the organized left has not stopped trying to force Christians into a position of servitude where you can't run your business the way you want to, you can't donate to causes that you want to, the way they keep trying to eliminate Chick-fil-A and it just keeps growing. Chick-fil-A is like the, a weed to the left. The, the harder they spray it with Roundup, yeah. the stronger Chick-fil-A becomes, which is kind of, it's, it's amazing. It's such a a huge blessing for those it's of us who would like to eat the chicken. It is. But I, I, I agree with you that a lot of Americans are moderating, but my, it's not really a fear. It's just my gut. My gut tells me that we can't moderate enough for the organized left. They're never going to be satisfied with us saying, okay, fine. You, you got the, you know, same sex marriage. So what? They're going to always have some new boogeyman they need to vanquish. Otherwise, why do they exist? Because their policies bring death and destruction. Look at inner cities across the country. They've just, had such a terrible impact on Americans wherever they they have rule, um, but yeah, I, I, I think your analysis is spot on when we when we're talking about uh, the chance that Bernie Bros would break from the party because they feel like it's his turn. He's he's the the heir apparent, and if they don't give it to him, if the Democrats don't give it to him, they're going to revolt. Give give us your website and where we can find all of your work. I think you you have a radio show too. Everything. Um, well, I'm on Honey Badger Radio. It's a, it's a podcast that you can find on YouTube, and it's a group of mostly women who talk about men's issues uh, through uh, examination of culture. So. Awesome. Honey Badger Radio. So thank you so much for your work and your writing and for joining us today on the show. Karen Strawn, you're fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Talk to you again soon. We will be back with more right after these important messages. Stay right there. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. At Tampa Bay, we adopted a mantra, no excuses, no explanations. The team had spent so much time living in the past, captive to their circumstances and to other people's low expectations, that they needed to learn that we were not going to be victims any longer. The same can be said for a marriage. Some say marriage is 50-50. For Tony and me, it's 100-100. We try not to give excuses or say, that's not my job. 
Everyone on a team or in a marriage has a contribution to make in building a winning team or a winning marriage. Marriage is hard work, but if you commit to it without excuses, it can be the greatest thing in life. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. My pride made me believe that my addiction was my business, that I can face it on my own. But at Teen Challenge, I found people I could trust, and with their help, I broke free from my addiction. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, Adult to Teen Challenge can help. There are centers across the country, and you can find the one nearest you at 855-END-ADDICTION or at TeenChallengeUSA.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Hi, friends. There's a new show in town on Urban Family Talk nightly, 7 p.m. Central. Join me, C.L. Bryant, as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. Nightly, the C.L. Bryant Show over Urban Family Talk, 7 p.m. The Dean's List with Janice Dean. A sweet friendship between a grandmother and a woman who needed someone to talk to makes today's Dean's List. Grandma Margaret dialed what she thought was the phone number for her grandson, Barry. As it turns out, she had mistakenly dialed the number of a woman named Callie. When she got the voicemail, Callie immediately called Grandma Margaret and told her she had dialed the wrong number. Despite the correction, Grandma Margaret would continue to try to reach out to Barry, only to leave voicemails on Callie's machine. After several misdials, she started to call Callie on purpose. The two began sharing weekly phone calls so they could swap stories about their lives. Callie was particularly grateful for the companionship because she had been going through a rough time with her family and she appreciated having someone to talk to. Finally, after a year of phone calls, Callie drove out of town to meet Grandma Margaret and the reunion was fantastic. Callie and Margaret, your story is an inspiration to all of us. You both made today's Dean's List. Janice Dean, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. This happened in 2011 with Holder. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't a constitutional crisis then when uh, Republicans were demanding documents uh, over uh, the Fast and Furious scandal. Now suddenly it's a constitutional crisis over uh, one, what is it, 1.5% of the Mueller report that is uh, still redacted and the underlying evidence, that's a constitutional crisis. Well, and secondly, secondly Donald Trump Jr. is not a member of the executive branch. So yeah. this, I think we shouldn't rush He's to conflate them. Q. Oh, yeah. So the fighting begins. It wasn't a crisis, a constitutional crisis, when Republicans demanded documents from Eric Holder. That's such an uh, apt point to make. And that was Michael Continetti. He's the editor of the award-winning Washington Free Beacon. And he was having a little bit of an argument with some some people who feel like saying the word constitutional crisis over and over and over again actually makes something like a crisis or something. So it, again, we, we don't have a crisis because there isn't anything extra that they need to get. Now, I want to give you some details. And when whenever I see these stories um, and I listened to the audio and I'm like, well, what exactly is like, what's the detail here? Well, here's a little bit more detail for you to utilize if you, 
if you need to, if, if someone is on this like a dog on a bone and they won't let it go and you're kind of want to let them have some information to chew on so they can let you be. Attorney General Barr is bound by the federal rule of criminal procedure 6E, which prohibits the disclosure of grand jury material. He has placed a version of the Mueller report in a secured room on Capitol Hill and granted access to congressional leaders of both parties, as well as the chairman and ranking members of intelligence and judiciary committees in the House and the Senate. None of the six Democrats given access to this version of the report have bothered to go read it. Senator Mark Warner told National Review's John McCormick that they are not going to view the 99.9% redacted version because it would lessen the case for making that report available to all of Congress. As National Review notes, Democrats aren't asking for that version. They're demanding the 100% unredacted version, which includes the grand jury information protected by law and millions of pages of underlying documentary evidence. So why do they want that? They want that because if they have millions of pages to access, they can comb through it and they can make up whatever they want. It will give them the grounds with which to carry the witch hunt all the way through to the 2020 election. Literally, whatever day in November that is, that is when they will stop talking about it. And maybe even a few days afterwards, because without it, what are they running on? That the economy is bad? It's not. It's great. That unemployment is too high? It's not. It's really low. The lowest ever. If they want something to run on, something with which to beat the president over the head, they're going to be found wanting unless they can comb through the millions of pages of evidence and find something that looks suspicious that, quote unquote, Mueller overlooked, that, quote unquote, was suppressed or left untouched, something to distract away from the fact that now that the Mueller report is in and the investigation is over, the spying allegations will now be investigated. And they have to have something to go up against that. They want to go through Mueller's evidence themselves, cherry picking information for the 22 investigations into President Trump that they currently have going on so they can impeach Trump or indict him. In fact, they're in a position where if they let it go, they expose themselves and they're upset. So they don't want to let it go anyway. They want to prove that Mueller was an incompetent, that he missed something, that he Uh, left some information that would have led to an indictment off in a corner somewhere. Even though Mueller and his team were as anti-Trump as any team could have been put together, if, if, if the Avengers are the ultimate team, to use, you know, Marvel Universe type stuff, if the Avengers are the ultimate, then Mueller's team, by comparison, would be the ultimate in hating Donald Trump. They wanted to take him down. And if they could have, they would have. Do you, do you, you see what I'm saying? There, there's no realm in which if they had something to use, they wouldn't have used it. Democrats on the full Judiciary Committee will vote to hold Barr in contempt, of course. Um, and the House will probably hold him in contempt as well. And, and we know that's going to happen. So the only thing we can do at this point um, is watch the Democrats spin out of control Watch them put themselves in a position where um, most of America is laughing at them and most of America is, is, you know, kind of basically ignoring them. Um, so I want to move over to this, this other story. And I just I'm I'm at a loss because I 
every time I think, well, that politician is moderately normal, like that, that's the way I feel about Joe Biden. As much as I hate his, you know, sniffing and groping and all that stuff, he's had some pretty normal opinions, but he is being radicalized right before our very eyes. And this latest example of his radicalization is, and I didn't, I didn't pull this audio because he's outside and the background noise, the audio of his voice is so low, it's not worthy of like radio listening. But I'll tell you what he said. The leading Democratic candidate was at a campaign stop in Los Angeles, California on Wednesday, and a reporter asked him if law-abiding illegals, a oxymoron to be sure, deserve federal benefits. And he didn't even skip a beat. He said, regardless of whether they are documented or undocumented, we have an obligation to see that they're cared for. Let me give you the whole statement. Quote, I think that anyone who is in a situation where they're in need of health care, regardless of whether they are documented or undocumented, we have an obligation to see that they are cared for. That is why I think we need more clinics around the country, as opposed to the 55 or 56,000 clinics we currently have around the country. We need more. The federally funded clinics that we have operating all over the United States. Just gobs of them. The same clinics that Democrats don't want us to look at for reproductive care for women. They instead want us to give women over to the clutches of Planned Parenthood. I guess those clinics should be used for these illegal aliens. Now, he also added that we have to tone down the rhetoric, quote unquote, against illegals. And he worries that illegal immigration, um, the worries over it are meant to create fear and concern about the other, the immigrant. Well, nobody's worried about immigrants. It's illegal aliens everyone's worried about, and not because they're others, because they're not citizens. They're not here lawfully. It's so simple. Now, Biden has actually been kind of, you know, zipped in the lip about the health care issue. He certainly supports Obamacare. He wants to expand Obamacare, but he's not spoken of what kind of plan he prefers as he gears up the campaign for 2020. Now, Biden has not endorsed Medicare for all, but he hasn't denounced it. And illegal aliens, according to Joe Biden, are already Americans. I repeat, Joe Biden said illegal aliens are already Americans. You know, so how dare you, you know, think that he um, would protect you as an American? He thinks the people who are pouring over the border a thousand a day right now, that those people are Americans. I don't know what you are. I don't know what you and I are, but those people are the Americans, according to Joe. And. Where does that information come from? A 2014 speech to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C., when then Vice President uh, Biden declared that millions of illegals in the U.S. are already citizens. So this is something that any person can find. Here's the quote from 2014. You know, the 11 million people living in the shadow, 30, 40 million, whatever. I believe they're already American citizens. Teddy Roosevelt said it better. He said, Americanism is not a question of birthplace or creed or line of descent. It's a question of principles, idealism, and character. These people are just waiting, waiting for a chance to be able to contribute fully. And by that standard, 11 million undocumented aliens are already American. Well, I mean, if you take words from a previous sitting president out of context, you can make any group of people into anything you want. It's the same thing I say about people who they'll take, they'll cherry pick a verse out of the Bible, not the verse before it or the verse after it, which give it context, which is the single verse. And they'll use it to try to bludgeon you over the head with some issue that's clearly against God's word. 
to literally go against five or six other scriptures that are in the Bible with the one cherry picked scripture and try to tell you that God, you know, is in favor of same sex marriage or in favor of abortion or in favor of illegal aliens, you know, invading and bombarding a sovereign nation. None of those things are true. Just like this statement here isn't true. Him cherry picking a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. So Joe Biden as you know, nice and calm as he sounds, as he just puts on this front that makes it seem as if he's just, he's just the nicest guy. You know, he's just somebody who, if he could just get into the presidency, he'd be so good to us. Well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't be good for us. Not only would he not be good for us, but he would make all of the things that we thought Obama did that were pretty, pretty awful. He'd make those things all the more worse Because he'd be coming off of this robust Trump presidency and he would turn all of the accomplishments of the Trump administration on their heads and eliminate them, eliminating them, reversing them and sending us back down the path that we were on where we had the president and others who supported him telling us, well, you know, um, look, this is the new normal. Fact is, um, you know. 1.7% 1.7% GDP growth, that's, that's the best we can do now. This is the new normal. Um, it wasn't the new normal, was it? Because if it was, how are we in this area where 3.2 GDP looks like it's the new normal? It was failure dressed up to look like something normal. And Joe Biden would usher that back in on steroids. So, uh, you know. I think we have a lot to to kind of look at when it comes to who's going to if you if you're thinking about voting for the Democrats there's there's a there's a lot to look at um but none of it's good. And so you know there it is. That that's just what's going to dominate as we go through every single uh all these different opportunities for us to look at who these people are, what they believe, etc. Um so now I This writer is calling this HBO Trump and Freud, which is a play on Schadenfreude, which is where you see your enemy, something bad happened to your enemy, and you're gleeful about it. It's a German word. Now, we're not going to be gleeful, but this is an interesting story about um, this new special that HBO is putting on with Mark Ruffalo and Rosie O'Donnell. Just think, two people you never want to see just sitting around talking, but they're having this HBO special. And, you know, Rosie is famous for her tussles with Donald Trump. And Mark Ruffalo has come out vehemently opposed to Donald Trump and said awful things about him. And I don't even think it's because he believes it so much because he doesn't seem political at all. It's because he lives in Hollywood and he does not have the opportunity to have his own opinions. He either hates Trump and he keeps working or he acts ambivalent or likes Trump. And he is immediately carved out of his soft, cushy spot as, you know, the Hulk and everything else he's been doing in Hollywood. So the two of them are starring in this new HBO series called I Know This Much Is True, which is not a biography. It's, it's, I don't know what it's about, probably some political, um, you know, banding back and forth with a whole bunch of non-facts. So they had this expensive set that they've built and HBO has been filming them and, you know, they're, they're in production. Well, Thursday night, a fire burned down the set and no one was hurt because it was at night, but it was a huge loss for, uh, for HBO. The quote from general manager, Chris Busby, 
he was talking to the Poughkeepsie Journal. He said, there's nothing left. It's a huge loss for us in HBO. They're just as heartbroken over this as we are. Now, HBO is a sister network of CNN and TBS. TBS employs Samantha Bee. And remember, Samantha Bee kept her job after saying the most ridiculously slimy things about the Trumps. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not happy that their set burned down, but it's just interesting the people involved and what's happened here. You know, we can take from it what we will. Um, so now there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of stuff that's going on with Don Jr. And I just want to say we should be praying for the Trumps, the larger Trump family, uh, for the attacks that they're under. And they just really hate Don Jr. Because online on social media, he makes them look like fools. And they are, that that is something that they, I think they just can't tolerate. And that's why we see so much hatred towards him, the subpoenaing. He's already been there and testified for 20 hours. That's something that most Americans don't know, because if Democrats were to point that out, it would make Don Jr. seem like he's being persecuted, which is exactly what's happening. So I just want to make sure we, we kind of think about how we're going to call uh, for it, just we got to pray for them. We got to pray for them that they would be able to stand up against this onslaught. So. We've also heard a little bit in the news just lately about this, uh, the, the talks for trade falling apart and the possibility, I believe it's going to happen on Monday, the tariffs against China are going to go up to from 10% to 25%. So there's a little bit of backstory there. Um, they'd actually had a huge, like 200 page or some, some odd 200 pages or so agreement that they'd been negotiating over. And at the last minute, the Chinese government kind of pulled out all the stops on it and said, look, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to use this. Um, we can't agree to any of the restrictions in this document. We, we agree that we're going to abide by it, but we don't agree to sign this and kind of make it official. And I think one of the things that's so important about that is that the response from the president is, okay, fine, then your tariffs are going up. That is the way to handle trillions of dollars that are at stake on these substantive issues around the future of the U.S.-China trade relationship. So actually, it was midnight last night that those tariffs were scheduled to increase to 25%. We'll see what happens. God bless from the heartland. Have a fantastic weekend.